All right, we did a good thing. We got the sledgehammer on. For... No, I was going to make a sledgehammer golf reference to our next guest, but I remember he's not that good at golf, so uh, he definitely... He definitely looks good on the course, which is really all that matters. You know me. I'm a big look-good, feel-good guy. And uh, Matt Perino, New York Upstate, joining me on the Western Hotline, he subscribes to the look-good, feel-good, uh, you know, a golf-dressing campaign. Uh, however, it did not translate on the course for the Bills Media Tournament. I was happy with my performance. That was the first time I got out this year. Um, you know, the thing for you is, it's like, if you don't go out there and win it, it's like a huge disappointment. Yeah, like yeah. Headline yeah. news. Yeah. It's kind of why for the last three years you haven't showed up on my driveway to play basketball. <laughs> it's okay. We can play golf. I get it. Listen, uh, Marcel has agreed with me in this that, like, especially I can't risk golf season by rolling an ankle in your driveway. <laughs> you got to understand, I, when you I get old, you're you're an old man yourself. That. I know you're turning 40 this year. You're an old man yourself, dude. You roll one ankle, we're talking we, – this isn't a two- or three-week three, three turnaround. A rolled ankle at 30, 40 years old, we're talking 6, 7, 10, 15-week injury, icing every day, ra- you know, lifting, raising up your foot. Like, that's no joke now. Like, it, it, 10 years ago I rolled my ankle, I'm, I'm back up in two weeks now. I might be done for the whole summer. I totally 100% respect that. And, you know, John Scott tries to get me to go out and uh, play in his – he's got to pick up a basketball league, a softball league. And it's like, man, if I get hurt, like we're talking about just like a miserable month Correct. Ahead. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm 100% with and, you. And, you know, listen, don't let John, John Scott pressure you into playing basketball. He – John Scott's a classic – intramural basketball hero like he's out there taking charges you know like getting up yelling in the in the volunteer referee's face like that is john scott to a t yeah without a doubt and rightfully so i mean if i could kind of you know mess it up down in the paint like he can in some of these pickup games i i'd probably look forward to that there's not a lot yeah, of matchups and pickup that he's not looking forward to so yeah i get it yeah, he's a big guy. And by the way, like had it had it been two v two in your driveway, it was hundred percent you and me on each other because I was definitely making Marcel go to cover John Scott. I I, had, I wanted nothing to do with John Scott and the paint. Yeah, I don't show up if John Scott's not on my team. So <laughs> we're, we're 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 aligned at this point. <laughs> Love that. All right, buddy. Well, listen, it was a long, I don't know, couple of weeks of Bill's OTAs down there at One Bill's Drive, and um, you got yourself a good view of what this team is going to look like heading into training camp and obviously this upcoming season. What was the one thing, maybe it was a player, maybe it was what you saw in the brief, um, you know, install periods on offense or defense. Is there something that stood out to you that you kind of looked to yourself and said, you know... That's gonna. That's a new wrinkle. That's a new phase. This feels different. What What was that for you over the first couple of weeks of OTAs, if any? You know, it's 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 hard because we don't want to overreact to stuff that's happening without any pads. But I I think that the wealth of talent, like that, might be flying under the radar that the Bills have at their disposal at wide receiver. I don't think really we as a group are talking enough about how hard that decision is going to be. And Sean McDermott talked about it last week. It's like you build this thing up and add all this talent and Brandon Bean's done what he's done to get to this point, to make these hard, hard decisions. Well, 
there's a ton, especially in the slot. Like trying to figure out how this is going to shape up in the slot is really hard. And, you know, you have Isaiah McKenzie, Jamison Crowder, who already in four weeks looks like he is potentially an upgrade over what we saw from Cole Beasley last year. And I'm not talking about an upgrade over the three-year sample size of Cole Beasley, but I just mean maybe a throwback to what Cole Beasley was at his best in this offense. You have that at your disposal. Then you throw in the rookie, Khalil Shakir, and then the wild card, all of a sudden, when, when they signed Tavon Austin, I wasn't projecting him to really be even in the mix for mm. a roster spot. But now, they love him in that room, Nate. I mean, the way Josh Allen was talking about him the other day, he's a guy, to me, that I think is going to be one of those glue guys, those, those valuable veterans that you know Sean McDermott covets. Now, he's got to earn the job over the course of the next six to uh, ten weeks. He's got to stay healthy. Uh, once camp starts, obviously. But, man, they have a ton of wide receiver talent. And, oh, by the way, Marquez Stevenson had a really nice bounce back after a slow start in OTAs. I thought the last two and a half weeks he was as good as anybody out there. He was making really good catches. Isaiah Hodgins had himself a day. And if he could stay healthy, they're going to have so many tough decisions on this in this wide receiver room. Yeah, Hodges is an interesting name to me, and you know, a lot of you know, following along on your post practice, you know, observation pieces, and up on your podcast, and not just you, but other media members as well, talking a lot about the Case Keenum and Isaiah Hodgins uh, connection during OTAs. And and listen, I know there's no pads on, and that's really where for me, Matt, I've been waiting for Isaiah Hodgins to pop. He seems to pop when the pads are off. He he seems to go get a little invisible at times when the pads go on. That, that to me, is going to be the biggest separator, I think, of the wide receiver room, Matt, is when the physicality starts, when the guys start getting pressed at the line of scrimmage, can they make plays? Can they get open for their quarterback? That's when it's going to matter. But Hodgins, uh, Stevenson, um, you know, and, and even to a certain extent, you mentioned uh, Tavon Austin. Like, when the pads come on, there are two wide receiver positions, maybe, Matt, I mean, because I want to think that Kumaro and Isaiah McKenzie are locks, and I think Crowder and you know Diggs and, and Davis are locks. That really means there's one position maybe up for grabs and five guys going for it, and that's if you keep six. I would be surprised if this team keeps seven, but maybe that seventh spot is Tavon Austin pushing his way onto the roster. Right. And, you know, I think in the end, we don't have to go overboard in, in projecting this because I think the Bills are going to be able to put one or two of these guys at least on their practice squad if they want with the, rule, with the way the rules are structured and everything like that. It comes down to who don't you want to risk losing the most, you know, at the end. Because they put Isaiah Hodgins on the, on the practice squad all year last year. So they could probably do that again. I don't think anybody's coming for him necessarily. But I was talking about this on a recent episode of the podcast and trying to, like, envision – what now this wide receiver room looks like. And, you know, the last couple of years you had John Brown in 20, then Emmanuel Sanders in that kind of wide receiver two role to start the year. Gabriel Davis is that now definitively, right? So what does that open up in the wide receiver group? That utility man, that do whatever you need him to do whenever you need him to do it role that has been Gabriel Davis over the last two seasons when he had 13 touchdown um, catches. And I think he was only playing like 30 to 40% of the snaps. That, to me, is now Isaiah McKenzie. So I'm not going to pencil him or, or write him in pen in that slot competition because I can think you could do a little bit of everything with, with Isaiah McKenzie. I think that maybe they see him internally, and this isn't anything that I have, like a source or anything like that, but potentially as a guy that can maybe do more than just 
that slot receiver role that he's kind of filled in back up to, to Cole Beasley the last couple of years. And then that opens up that slot spot for maybe uh, Jameson Crowder, Khalil Shakir can kind of go in the Marquez Stevenson role and just develop this season. And then maybe Marquez Stevenson can, can earn that spot as being your deep threat, your, your guy that really puts pressure on the defense down the field when he's on, on the field. So, so many interesting things. And, but to your point, when we started this, we're not going to really know, have a good idea or grasp of this until we see it out at training camp. And the cool thing is 12 open practices. I mean, fans are going to get a really good long look at all of this. Matt Perino here of New York Upstate Shout Podcast, joining us on the West Her Hotline. We're talking Bill's minicamp. We were just talking some receivers. You know, Matt, I, I'm also interested in your thoughts on the defensive backfield side of things because it seems like, you know, for the most part, we're not going to see a lot of – Again, the the evaluation portion, especially at the defensive back position, really comes when the pads come on, right? In the same in the same way I mentioned, you know, the wide receiver room, Isaiah Hodgins, wanting to see those guys step up from a physicality perspective. The same's gonna be said about Kyer Elam, the Bills rookie first round pick a corner, and Dane Jackson. I mean, that is a legitimate, you know, one in one competition that's gonna be happening throughout training camp and in the preseason. What have you saw um, you know, throughout training camp or I'm sorry, throughout OTAs from this defensive backfield, is there something that stood out to you? I know Nick McLeod, we saw and heard from him getting moved back to the safety position. Any other guys stand out to you during this OTA process, maybe when we got in seven-on-sevens, making plays, being sticky in coverage? Who really stood out to you in that defensive backfield? Yeah, uh, I thought Kyer Elam, like, he really trended upwards throughout the entire course of the offseason, which is not a surprise for a young guy that is getting more and more comfortable with the playbook as each day passes. Um, the thing that jumps out at you, even without pads, is the recover speed of Kyrie Elam. Like, that speed, that 4-4-40 time that everybody's been talking about over the last couple of months, you see it on the field, no doubt about it. There was a play he made in the last practice of minicamp where Josh Allen saw uh, Jamison Crowder kind of coming open, and they had a miscommunication. And I think he thought he was going to, you know, go down the field, and he just stopped where he was on the left side. And Allen threw it up. It probably would have been a good ball if Crowder finished off a 50-50 ball if Crowder finished the route, but he didn't. But Kyrie Elam didn't stop. He noticed. He was watching the quarterback. He read his eyes. He then turned on the afterburners, Nate, and then we were standing right on that sideline. So he was coming basically right at us. And you're just like, your eyes kind of open up a little bit more, and you're just like, wow, that's that speed everybody's talking about. So I, when I'm envisioning this, this camp battle, right, because Dane mm-hmm. Jackson started a lot of games last year, maybe – He's in the mix for that other starting spot if Trey's not ready to go week one. Uh, I see that. But I don't see a situation where Kyrie Elam's not on the field to start unless it's really bad. I go back to what Brandon Bean has said in the past. Like I'm not going to draft a player in the first round unless I'm 100% sold that he could start day one because I don't want him to deal with that, like, you know, starting right. to hear murmurs of, of being a bust. So I think Elam's going to be on the field. And uh, so far, so good. I mean, he's looked really explosive really fast. Well, let's talk about another guy that came in this offseason, and that's O.J. Howard, Bill's tight end. Um, Sort of some weird, you know, like Florio came out with like a weird article yesterday or two days ago talking about how, you know, he's not going to push Dawson Knox maybe. Like, yeah, no kidding. He was not brought in here to push Dawson Knox to be the starting tight end on this team. So that's just a weird thing and felt very, 
out of touch on what's actually happening here at Buffalo. But, but I digress. And and listen, you know, part of, you know, I think it was some of your feedback I was listening to about how he was definitely looking a little slower out of breaks. And I'll tell you, you know, from the injury perspective, the, the Achilles tendon that he tore two years ago, that's a tough injury to come back from. You're six foot seven or whatever he is. He's like six, seven, six. He's a big guy. Um, how much of the speed that you're watching him play with do you think has to do with him slowing down a little bit from that injury? Or how much, if you could put a percentage on it, part of it too, I think, Matt, is getting comfortable in a new scheme and a new system and asking to be running different routes than maybe he was traditionally running in Tampa Bay. I, I, I still have hope that he can be a good, solid, in-line, number two tight end. And he didn't have, have to catch 40 balls to do that. Yeah, I, I think this conversation is a really good one. And I, I had some comments about O.J. Howard. I, I always am kind of on the fence about putting out too much negative stuff from, from a padless practice because I think sometimes people run with it and get a little bit of – I put out that I thought throughout the course of this offseason so far, he seemed a little bit slow and a little bit robotic in his routes. Now, at the same time, I explain that away as – these guys come in, Nate, and the first thing out of their mouth after they get a couple days in the playbook is like, man, this is one of the hardest things I've ever looked at in the NFL. Tavon Austin just said it when, he's got, when he got here a few weeks ago, and he's played for four or five NFL teams. So that is part of it. I think just getting down what you're supposed to do, I think it's partly why offensive players that are rookies tend to get off to slow starts for the Bills because of how complicated this has been. And I think there's probably a physical element. I also think there's – a voluntary element that if you're O.J. Howard, he didn't tell me this or anything, I haven't had a chance to talk to him about it, but I would probably be going at 60 or 70% in, these, in this kind of setting so that I don't suffer an injury being a person that's been pretty injury-prone over the course of my career. So there could be an element that we don't even know about where they're just they're dialing him back to keep him healthy, you know, making sure that he gets into training camp. This stuff right now is just more about getting down the concepts a lot of it's walkthrough, a lot of it's half speed. So it's definitely not something to overreact to. But I just thought, hey, I, I should probably report this because he has looked a little bit slower than I anticipated, knowing the athletic uh, profile that he comes with. We were talking about the competition just a few minutes ago at the wide receiver position, how deep that group is, talking about Taven Austin, talking about, like, you know, is this team going to keep seven receivers? One of the things, you know, I read in Joe B's piece this week um, that, you know, has observations from Wednesday's practice. And, you know, I know you mentioned Isaiah McKenzie a little bit, but I want to, I maybe want to like drill down a little bit more on, on sort of trying to predict what he looks like in this offense this year. And, you know, one of the prevailing thoughts about McKenzie is that he is kind of a one trick pony and that he's not going to run every tree in the, in the route tree and maybe is more of a gadget player. But what are you expecting from McKenzie this year? Like, do, do you, because frankly, when he got to the team in 2018, he really was one of the pieces that I think started clicking right away with Josh Allen. Um, and then, you know, he's kind of, I would say really from his, the, his first season with the Bills to now, we've almost seen a decline in his presence on the field. And yet they re-sign him again for the second straight offseason, this time to a two-year deal. I get the sense, and, and this is to talk about, we were talking about, you know, Kumaro and, and Tavon Austin, all these guys at the wide receiver position. That doesn't even count their, their fifth-round pick, Khalil Shakir, who's also in this conversation as well. But for McKenzie, at least this year, where do you see his role evolving to? Because I think the word evolving is important when you're talking about McKenzie's role because it's not going to be the same as last year. Right, and you talk about two guys at the top now and Diggs and Gabriel Davis, who's been pretty available, right? But they've also had their dings over the last couple of seasons. They've missed time. If one of those guys goes out, if you look at this wide receiving core right now, 
who has the kind of skill set to step up into a supplementary role to the other one that's still healthy? I mean, to me, that's the only guy that really stands out is McKenzie. And we're, we, we oftentimes box ourselves in to what we've seen so far, right? But the way that you look at Isaiah McKenzie, even the last year, and the way that he moves around the formation, there's a lot of times I've seen in um, you know, preseason games and actual games, practices over the years, where he's lined up outside and ran really good routes and maybe even beat his guy because of his speed, his quickness, and his looseness. And there's just not that role for him in the offense. And so, you know, I think now with, with, with not a clear-cut veteran number three, you know, I, I think John Brown kind of settled into that a couple of years ago. I know he was wide receiver too, but there was, you know, Gabriel Davis was coming on, and he almost became like the third guy when he got back, right? Then it was last year, I thought Emmanuel Sanders started as that, you know, number one, number two. And then before long, Gabriel Davis took that back as well. Now Davis is that guy, like I said, and I just think McKenzie now, he fits into a, a more dynamic role. And if the matchup calls for it, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they lean on him in the slot, a la a, a, a Patriots game type situation from last season. And then when it's a game where you're going up against a zone defense and you want to utilize Jamison Crowder's crafty route running ability mm. and ability to find you know, spots in the zone, maybe you lean on him a little bit more and you work McKenzie in elsewhere. Um, it's going to be interesting, and that's the, 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 the most interesting thing about all of this that I haven't even talked about yet is the dynamic of Joe Brady now in that offensive room. Like, right. they, it's a real collaborative effort that I don't think most, like, casual fans really understand. Like, you think, all right, Joe Brady, he's the quarterback's coach, and it ends there. It really doesn't. He, you know, everybody that's talked about Ken Dorsey, who was the quarterback's coach last year, Stephon Diggs, Devin Singletary, Dawson Knox, they all talked about how much they enjoyed working with Dorsey and his impact on the entire offense as the quarterback's coach. Brady's been an offensive coordinator in the NFL. He was probably the most hyped position coach in the history of college yeah. football after that cha- national championship a couple of years ago. And what was he there, Nate? A wide receivers coach. He worked with Justin Jefferson. He worked with Jamar Chase. That kind of infusion of brain power mm-hmm. into an offensive room, you really can't understate how much that could potentially mean. I'm glad you brought up Ken Dorsey in this because, you know, I'm not going to say he's been flying under the radar, but because I think a lot of people are talking about the Ken Dorsey effect and how an offense like Josh Allen's, like, you know, just it's it's just don't break it, right? Like, don't try to be do too much. Don't try to be something you're not because this is an offense that needs very little change. But I do think, Matt, that it does need some level of change. It needs Ken's... I don't know, like his own magic to it. Like to be Brian Dable, I think would do a disservice to being Ken Dorsey. And I think Ken brings a different element, playing the position at a high level in college in Miami and in a program that had more NFL players than any program I can remember ever. Um, And then playing in the NFL, that means something more than maybe Brian Dable's experience, which was mostly, you know, coaching at the tight end position. And he got to see the game from a lot of different perspectives as a coach, but Ken's got to see it from the field and knowing that he has that rapport with Josh Allen already I think is major key but like where do you put maybe like the onus the pressure that that currently exists on the shoulders of Ken Dorsey yeah how real is that pressure I think there's some level of pressure on Josh Allen to for, when it comes to Dorsey's success he he kind of tabbed him from the start of this process when David was going like yeah I want Dorsey like he, he said it basically outright and when he was hired he said yeah that, that was what I wanted all along we already have this rapport so you know Josh Allen's going into year five, and he is an MVP candidate for the, the, the leading Super Bowl contender 
And a lot of the pressure in my eyes is going to be on Allen to run this offense and take that next step to start to evolve into, you know, that coach onto the field a little bit, which I think he's already kind of been. But there was a calming nature to Brian Dable's approach, right? He was very – he had a way about him that welcomed everybody into the room, created this family atmosphere, and then kind of sent everybody out and, you know, let them do their job, but also was this calming presence in games. How's Ken Dorsey going to do with that part of it? Is that part of his demeanor? I hear, I've heard that he's super fiery. Like, people don't even understand how competitive he is. And when he's down there, like Gabriel Davis even joked, like, yeah, I kind of want him up, on, uh, up in the booth because he's that intense and, and stuff down on the field. So does he dial that back a little bit now that he's kind of like the CEO of the offense? One thing that somebody said, though, um, I'm trying to think back if it was Diggs or Davis. I think it was Davis. And he said, the thing that stands out about Dorsey is that he's in attack mode all the time. And if, you're, if you take this offense with this quarterback and the, the, the amount of talent around him, and now you supercharge the attack mentality of that offense, I'm interested to see what that looks like because they have the horses, they have the creativity, they have the risk, and that could maybe be a little bit more aggressiveness in the run game. Like how do they utilize their wide receivers in the run game? What is the, the, the dynamic mix between James Cook, Zach Moss, and Devin Singletary? That'll be interesting to watch. What's Cromer, Aaron Cromer's effect on all of that? So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. They got a couple months to really perfect it. Then they, you know, they, get, the, they get the preseason, Nate, and they got to figure out where's Dorsey going to be calling plays from and can he in three preseason games get the necessary reps mm. on top of what he's already been doing behind the scenes to be able to go out day one and be ready for every situation that comes up with, you know, in a game. That's going to be part of it too. That's, that's the part where I wonder if it's the biggest learning curve for this offense is like, you know, Dorsey being able to react in game. Maybe he will. He's been a quarterback before. He's called plays on the field before. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm really interested in that whole dynamic. And, you know, listen, I think the the interesting part, too, about the, the Dorsey-Allen relationship is, and, and this is going to go forth as I think Josh Allen is going to get a lot of guys head coaching jobs in this league at the offensive coordinator position because of how good he is. But, you know, it is unique because the Bills are one of the, the very rare top teams with a defensive-minded head coach. Like, the quarterback for Green Bay, whoever it is, is going to have Matt LaFleur, an offensive guru, a mastermind, Shanahan, mastermind, right? Like, a lot of these top teams with the top offenses, McVay in L.A., um, all have offensive-minded head coaches that are all going to have that continuity in the offensive side of the ball, and that's... Probably never going to be that continuity in terms of coach and quarterback on the offensive side. That may there may never be a constant here in Buffalo, and that's something to think about for the future. That that I don't think we've all really kind of taken the time to appreciate. Yeah, that's a that's a whole podcast uh, yeah. episode, right? Like the what the the next iteration of coaching staff could look like if it ever really falls apart here for Sean McDermott. Like people ask me all the time on the heels of thirteen seconds, like. You know, if he has a bad season this year, like, what's going to happen? Look at the last 17 years. Look at the relationship with these owners. It could be probably three or four bad seasons, and I don't sure. necessarily know that they're going to they're gonna move on from Sean McDermott. And, listen, in-game, what he gets out of rosters usually over the course of his career, he's been in the playoffs three out of four seasons, it's really hard to knock his program and what it does. And it, it reminds you a lot of Andy Reid, right? Like, when he was coming up with Philadelphia, how many of those near – uh, championship runs ended in dramatic and disappointing fashion. And, you know, that around the league, the reputation was that Andy Reid just couldn't win the big one. 
and then eventually he he finds the right role. Now, right. if you're a Bills fan, you're like, all right, well, don't I don't want the the Eagles portion of McDermott's career to all be in Buffalo before he goes and wins. <laughs> but you get my point. Like eventually, I think you go through enough hard times, through enough hard games where you have to react in certain things. And I go back to it, Nate. Like with the way that 13 seconds went down last year, and we've we've seen a couple articles that popped up over the course of the off season, people talking about who was at fault and and all that kind of stuff. To see the last month in that building, already the buy-in into the McBean way of, like, team building and the excitement to go back to Rochester and how much these guys, you know, love playing together and the, the consistent, you know, narrative has been they love playing for McDermott. And so I, I anticipate it being kind of more of the same. But, yeah, an interesting conversation to have, and we're, you know, we'll, we'll continue to have it year after year, I'm sure, if there's another couple of disappointments. All right, Prino, appreciate you, my friend. Uh, enjoy your weekend, and uh, we'll be chatting soon as we head to training camp. I look forward to seeing you out there at Fisher. Can't wait, buddy. Have a great weekend. Thanks, man. You too. Matt Prino there in New York Upstate in the Shout Podcast on the Western Highlands. I'm going to take a timeout. Pro Football Focus Eric Eager is coming up next here on WGR. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're at the halfway mark here of our Sports Talk Saturday broadcast. We're going back to the Wester Hotline now because Eric Eager of Pro Football Focus joins us. He's the co-host of the PFF pot, uh, Forecast podcast. And, uh, Eric, good uh, good afternoon to you, my friend. Thanks for joining me here on Sports Talk Saturday. We appreciate your time on a weekend, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We uh, brought you on because I wanted to, uh, to chat with you about the year two quarterback projections, um, some of the Tua Mahomes weird discourse from earlier last week, and, and kind of projecting out some of the, uh, some of the Bills' um, offensive numbers going into this year. And, and I wanted to start with you with the year two quarterbacks because I do think um, it's hard to really predict where quarterbacks go from a year two perspective, especially with the change a lot of these year two quarterbacks have experienced this year. Maybe no more than Mac Jones, who's probably the guy that had the best performance as a rookie last year with Josh McDaniels. And now he's got Matt Patricia potentially as his play caller. When you look at the Patriots as a whole, they didn't get a whole lot better across the offensive line. They get, um, you know, they, they add a receiver, but he's not a true number one, Devontae Parker. They add like five new running backs in the draft. Where does this offense to you go considering we have no real way to predict what a Matt Patricia slash, you know, Bill Belichick ran offense is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at, and this is the curse of, you know, a good uh, rookie year as a quarterback. I mean, he was worth about 2.8 wins above replacement, uh, which is worth about $28 million, and he was paid $2.8 million. So that's a really good value for the Patriots. But then ultimately, when, when that happens, you often see – the offensive coordinator get a head coaching job, understandably, right? And so that's what oftentimes contributes to a sophomore slump. I think that's a fairly reasonable thing to assume from Mac Jones, especially considering, you know, Buffalo, Miami, uh, the Jets got better defensively uh, this, this spring. So to me, uh, I, I think it's going to be a tough projection there. I, I think regression is probably in store for Mac Jones. And we saw it near the second half of the season anyway. Yeah, and I think the second half of that season – 
in particular for Mac Jones, what stood out to me last year is the 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 lack of a true number one weapon. And I'm not sure Parker's that guy. They've got this assembly, Eric, of a ton of like good number two and number three guys. We didn't see Josh Allen truly ascend until that number one wide receiver got here in Stephon Diggs. But he was able to take incremental steps with the John Browns and Cole Beasley's of the world. I- I'm wondering that this year, without that true number one receiver, is that step for Mac Jones less likely, knowing that you have the new variable and an offensive coordinator in Matt Patricia who's never called plays before? We don't know what the, the scheme he's going to back into is. Have they done enough at the skilled position, player position, across, whether it's tight end, receiver, running back, to surround him with enough talent to take a step? Or are we just going to sit here and assume that almost regardless of the players he has around him, he's bound to take that step back this year and using that second half of the season last year as maybe the, the key or the uh, the predictive measure to, to say so? I think so. I mean, I think it's fairly reasonable to say, look, like Parker has had number one receiver moments. Aguilar is the guy that can take the, the top off the of defense. Um, you know, with, with Kendrick Bourne as a guy who's been a, a contributor to a solid offense basically his whole career. But, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, the tight ends, I mean, like they didn't get the production out of the tight ends that I think they wanted to in free agency. So, um, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're making projections on these guys as well. They had a good year last year. They hope to have a great year out of those guys. And, and to me, I don't, I don't know if that's a great, uh, a great bet to make. So speaking of teams with some lackluster wide receivers, and, and, and I'll leave Mooney out of this conversation because I like him a lot, but I, I'm, I am of the mind, and, and I probably am in the, the large majority here, that Chicago simply did not do enough this offseason to surround Justin Fields with the talent on the offensive line and skill positions um, that I think was really required to get a true good look of what you're going to have from Justin Fields, short of just being spectacular with not a lot of good surrounding supporting cast. How do you judge Justin Fields year two where he's going to get 17 games to play and he's not going to be a guy fighting with Andy Dalton and and some other veteran for playing time? Like He's going to get the majority of the snaps this year, if not all of them, if he can stay healthy. How does one try to evaluate what he's able to do with the supporting cast that he has in Chicago? I think it's really hard. I mean, I think PFF grades do a decent job. Like if a guy's not getting open and he's still throwing darts and they're just incomplete, then, you know, we'll grade him better than, you know, if he's missing wide open guys, but it's going to be hard. And I, you know, I think, you know, one of the reasons Ryan Poles picked the Chicago bears ahead of the Minnesota Vikings is that he was able to start with a blank canvas for the most part, you know, Questia Doppelmans in Minnesota, you know, uh, ownership wanted them to stay the course with the current roster and, you know, that I think long-term is going to be bad for Minnesota. For Chicago, you know, they trade Khalil Mack. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of dead money on their cap this year because next year they want to be able to make plays. There wasn't really much that they could do to help Justin Fields. But then at the same time, they go in the draft, they take Kyler Gordon, um, you know, instead of a wide receiver. You know, they, they take Zealous Jones as opposed to, uh, you know, some of, the more, some of the younger guys, some of the better guys. So I, I think it's, you know, I think it's one of those things where they don't believe that much in Justin Fields and that he has to produce well without much support for them to be a buyer of him, which I think is kind of a rough situation to be in. I think it's incredibly unfair, Eric, because, I mean, this is a guy that, 
I think, frankly, went to the worst possible situation. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the worst things an NFL franchise can do is let a lame duck coach and lame duck general manager draft a quarterback because it's essentially a waste of a pick. And if you are planning on, and, and, and let's just, you know, for predictive measures here, say that Justin Fields struggles this year because I don't know a reason why he wouldn't. And they end up moving on. There's not really, like, a way to recoup assets when you have a depreciated asset that no, everyone knows you're trying to unload. So how do you, if you're an NFL owner, the lame duck coach, and I'm thinking of Nagy in this, and, and maybe to a certain extent Zimmer last year, but I think there was a real sense that they wanted Zimmer to succeed. It just didn't work out from ownership. I, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes an NFL franchise can do is let a coach and a general manager with like who are obviously on the hot seat go ahead and draft a quarterback. And I think it's one of the worst mistakes NFL franchises make. I agree. I think that the hard part is for ownership. Usually the cap situation is not so dire. You know, the, the hard part is when they allow the lame duck teams to sort of go all in, um, you know, sort of go all in um, when they, when they're not that good, you know, and I think yeah. you, you see kind of with, you know, Minnesota and, and Chicago and then, but like you look at like a team, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a, a, you know, like a Chargers team, right. Where, you know, Anthony Lynn hasn't done the, the best job in the world. They take, you know, Justin Herbert, you know, they, they come into that situation better probably, sure. uh, you know, than, than Chicago's team does. So I think it, it's more about where the cap was and the fact that not only did they draft the young quarterback, but they went somewhat all in as far as, uh, you know, salary, like the Jimmy Graham contract and stuff like that, to me, that leaves the, the roster somewhat desolate as, as we come into 2022. So do, do you, like, subscribe to a certain type of rebuild strategy? Because Chicago is kind of going in the opposite direction. You mentioned, I mean, they didn't have that first-round pick, but they go out, they get Kyler Gordon, they're drafting, um, you know, wide receivers that are 25 years old later in the uh, later in the draft. But this is a team and an organization that has, uh, frankly, ignored the offensive and defensive lines in terms of trying to rebuild them with youth. And I think if you look across the league, most teams, when a new coach, when a new general manager comes in, the strategy is to build from within and then build out from there. Build the offensive line, get it into position, then draft the franchise quarterback so they're set up for success. Now, Cincinnati didn't really do that, right? I mean, they had one of the worst offensive lines in football the, for the first two years of Joe Burrow's career, but it worked out for them because they built one of the strongest skill positions in all of football with Chase and Higgins and, and Tyler Boyd. But I'm wondering, like, is there a certain model you subscribe to that you believe gives a franchise their best opportunity to set a quarterback up for success when they ultimately do draft them? Yeah, the Bengals drafted a or sort of built a resilient defense around Burrow. There were six or seven, I think, members of their secondary last year that had played a thousand snaps with a different team other than the Bengals at the NFL level. So that you know that is something as well where you build a defense that gives yourself a chance. You're always going to have issues, right? You, you go from two and fourteen to ten and seven in two years. You're still going to have weaknesses along your offense. Um, I, you know, I, we also have the issue though is like when you build an offensive line. Like you look at Cleveland, right? So they built the offensive line. They they built a decent defense, and, and you know Baker Mayfield ultimately wasn't, you know, the guy there. And then you're left, you know, extending Wyatt Teller, extending Joel Batonio, giving Miles Garrett a ton of money, and you're still not that good because yeah. your quarterback, you know, isn't great either. So I don't know if there's one way. I, I, do, I do believe tanking works. I do believe in this idea that, you know, if you're not going to compete for a, a championship, you know, playing, uh, you know, playing, you know, 
having a quarterback like a Kirk Cousins or somebody like that who can help you understand who's good on your team, um, having a quarterback like Andy Dalton who can tell you that Darnell Mooney is good, I like that approach. Hmm. I think the problem is, is is teams you know sort of buy way too much into that and think like nine wins is really a success when in reality, like you're not doing much with nine wins, right? As, as Buffalo found out, you really need – that elite super quarterback to really compete for championships in the NFL. Eric Eager here of Pro Football Focus on our Western Hotline. We're talking about year two quarterbacks. And one guy that I think has been criminally under-talked about in this group of year two quarterbacks is Davis Mills, the quarterback in, in Houston. And in the same conversation, we're talking about the Minnesotas of the world, right? Overvaluing a nine-win season, a just above nine, a 500 season. I, I At times last year, I scratched my head thinking about Nick Casero's plan of essentially building a roster of a bunch of really middling aged roster players um, that didn't really have a future on short-term contracts that essentially were special teams players on other teams. But the way that they built, it feels like, and they didn't have that first-round pick last year, they go out, they get Davis Mills, they finally hand the offense over to him because Tyrod Taylor just can't stay healthy. And he, I don't want to say was the... Kind of, towards the end of the season, one of the better rookie quarterbacks of that draft class last year. But it's hard for me to say that like Trevor Lawrence looked better than Davis Mills at any point last year, and yet nobody's really talking about Davis Mills like the expectation that we're talking about. You know, Trevor Lawrence making the year two jump from you know getting away from Urban Meyer, and rightfully so. But like, I think their building method, although at first seemed very dumb and very head scratching. It's starting to yield, I think, an interesting route for them to get out of the basement of the NFL. I mean, it just it, I'm, not, I'm not predicting they're going to be a worst-to-first team. I think the Jaguars are in a way better position in that division. Um, but I'm certainly, like, I'm looking at them as a team that won't be as bad as they were last year. And I'm not exactly sure what kind of take that is. It's not like a scorching hot take or anything. But they do appear to be rotating and moving in the right direction, considering they're still a team that does not have a lot of top-end talent. Yeah, there. I mean, the organizational rot there is kind of high, you know. So I'm not never really going to buy into Houston. But yeah, Davis Mills was the third most valuable rookie quarterback in the NFL last year. He was he was pretty good considering he had you know really one guy to throw to and uh, and so the offensive line, Laramie Tunsil basically quit on the team halfway through the year and and Tyus Howard was you know just kind of a guy. Um, you know, defense wasn't great. Didn't give him a lot of support. So yeah, I mean, I think he's a a decent football player. I, I, I just have a really hard time, you know, seeing how that team's going to be successful given, uh, you know, the way in which the organization is set up, the things that they've, you know, kind of undergone as far as, you know, it's, it's a place where somebody's career goes to die for the most part, right? If you're, I know it feels like the early Gruden Raiders where like Doug Martin would go there and it's just like, give me another couple of years of salary and then I'm out of here. Um, yeah, that that to me is the only part of the Houston thing that I don't like. I mean, I I, I think Mills played wonderfully last year. The last two guys I want to ask you about, Eric, and, and obviously Trevor Lawrence has was sort of like viewed as this Andrew Luck can't miss number one prospect, and um, he certainly did not play that way last year. And it wasn't just the fact that he had Urban Meyer and the absolute tire fire that followed him around all season, but 
even when you wanted to isolate Trevor Lawrence away from what Urban Meyer was doing in that franchise, it just never looked like he was comfortable at any point last season. And, and I'm wondering with the additions of, you know, uh, with Christian Kirk and, and, and frankly, Doug Peterson, but also guys like, you know, Zay Jones, who are good replacement level wide receivers. Now, they probably overpaid for those receivers, but this is going to be a much better collection of pass catchers. Evan Ingram and, uh, and, 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 and having him as your number one tight end with Kirk and and Lewis and um or, I'm sorry and Marvin Jones and some of the other pieces that they're going to have it feels like he's got the pieces around him to take a step but I mean he has to take a step right because he was not good last year yeah a lot of stuff broke down around him I, I know the film guys really like how he handled the pocket presence you know his pocket presence and stuff like that but you know ultimately he was not accurate he was not he didn't take care good care of the football um, there was a lot of things to dislike about the way in which uh, Trevor Lawrence played last year. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, as far as what I'd like to see in this team, you know, Doug Peterson did wonders with Carson Wentz uh, early on in his career. You like that. Uh, I, I overbought into Urban Meyer because I thought with guys like Schottenheimer uh, and Bevel, he had some competence there, but that certainly did not shine through. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the offensive line, you get Robinson in there. I, I would have liked them to probably draft somebody like Evan Neal uh, or uh, Iki Aquanu instead of Trayvon Walker if they were going to go with somebody other than Aiden Hutchinson. But, uh, yeah, I think that the thing is set up nicely. I mean, they're the team in, in – they're the last the, – the first team in, this, in the NFL this year as far as the team that I would bet on uh, at, at market prices just because, you know, they have a defense that's not devoid of talent. They play in a really bad division – um, you know, they're basically a Matt Ryan meltdown away from having a shot to be, you know, a, a, a contender in that division. Yeah, that's a great point. I, the last guy, obviously, and I think maybe the most interesting is Trey Lance. And, you know, the Jimmy G era ends up ending in a really weird way because he never he was just exactly what Jimmy G has always been. I mean, a game manager, a guy that's not going to fit the ball into tight windows and is going to not necessarily make a lot of mistakes, but be a guy that in the playoffs can have one or two good performances and, and elevate your team to an NFC championship game, what he's done multiple times with that franchise. But with the Trey Lance era starting, Eric, I'm wondering how you project what Trey Lance will be considering the small sample size we had last year. He didn't really look comfortable, and I think there was a lot of people saying, well, this is a guy that did not play enough college football, only one full season. Like, him sitting on the bench would be detrimental to his development. He needs to play, and I, I think I agreed with that originally, but then I saw him play at times last year in place of Jimmy G, and I really wondered what, how he could, what it was going to look like when he took over as a full-time starter. We're going to get to see that this year. Yeah, he has the widest distribution of any player in that draft class from a running back or from a quarterback perspective. And um, I actually thought he had the, the lowest projection. I, I, I liked him less. I always thought people were relieved that they took Trey Lance instead of Mac Jones, but in reality, all of us wanted them to take Justin Fields at three, yep, right? And, yep. and, and that made the most sense. But people overlooked the fact that taking, taking Trey Lance at three was kind of a blunder. And um, in my opinion, like, they're going to be productive. They've been productive. I mean, Nick Mullins' career yards per pass attempt is pretty high. Um, you know, last year, last year Jimmy G had a 107.4 passer rating, uh, throwing from 10 to 19 yards. He had, in our system, two big-time throws, 15 turnover-worthy plays. So that's kind of like PFF's version of touchdown-to-interception ratio. Yep. And so, like, Shanahan was able to, like, make good offense out of that. 
So I think that the, the bar for Lance fundamentally will be low. Like, he doesn't have to perform that well for that offense to be successful. It, to me, it's just like, why did you trade the farm for that? Why, you know, you know, ultimately, like, you're thinking about giving up first round, giving up Debo Samuel to get first round picks back because you traded so much to get Lance. Right. Did that make a ton of sense to me? Not really. Eric, I appreciate you, man. Um, tell the folks where they can find you on Twitter if they don't follow you already and uh, any work you guys got uh, coming up the pipeline here. PFF underscore Eric on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, the PFF forecast comes out every Wednesday night and every Sunday night. Awesome, Eric. Appreciate you, man. Enjoy your rest of your weekend, and thanks for being available for me on a Saturday. Thanks for having me on. Take All right, care. All right Eric Eager there of Pro Football Focus on the Western Hotline. Got to take a timeout. On the other side, we'll preview our three. We've got Jeff Lloyd of Locked on Browns. He's coming up next here on WGR. All right, let's put a bow on hour two here of Sports Talk Saturday. If you missed any of our uh, our second hour, you'll want to go back WGR550.com on demand. We've got Matt Perino of New York Upstate at noon, and we just had Eric Eager of PFF join us. Talk about the year two quarterback carousel. It'll be uh, really interesting to see sort of the development and 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 who ends up taking that big year two step. Um I'm certainly interested to see what Trey Lance is going to do in San Francisco. Um, a lot of interesting stuff talking about uh, about Lance there from Eager. So if you missed any of that, you'll want to go do on-demand audio on the website. Take a listen to there, and Zach will have that up here at the following of this hour. Next hour, coming up here in just a few minutes, we're going to have Jeff Lloyd of Locked on Browns. We're going to talk about what happens if Deshaun Watson gets suspended for the whole season. What's the outlook look like for the Browns? So we'll get to Jeff um, on the other side here as uh, we continue on here on Sports Talk Saturday on WGR. It's time to support your favorite MLB superstars and let your voice be heard with the 2024 MLB All-Star Ballot presented by BuildSubmarines.com. Oh, what a shot. That's right. You get to help choose the starting lineups for the Midsummer Classic and decide who represents your team at the MLB All-Star Game presented by MasterCard this summer in Arlington. He makes the play. So make your picks today at MLB.com slash vote. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.